Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Huge Nick win last night. Man, I tell you, the Pistons should be pissed off. Market call. One o'clock on the East Coast, CME Day, which means it's Dan Nathan, as you can see there, and Swizzle, as you can see here. How are you, Dan? I'm doing okay, guy. I mean, the Pistons, the lowly Pistons, they should be pissed off. Come on, man. You know, I'm no, just saying. You know, I'm listen, they play, they they are professionals. Yeah. And that non-call, th- listen, I'm a lifelong Nick fan. I You're remember, wrong. I don't remember the 69-70 World Championship. I remember the... I guess it was 73, 74. Yeah. Um, I remember that. With that said, you know, I've been a Nick fan for the entire duration of this, and that was outrageous by any stretch. I mean, the 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 official, as we used to say, swallowed the whistle late and the pistons got robbed. But listen, hey, yeah. whatevs, as as the kids say, right? Whatevs. Um you know, there's some stuff going on in the markets here, guy. I mean, it's like one of those days where you look up and you say to yourself, mm. eh, you know, mm. we're, we're up we're up or down, you know, 15 basis points in the major indices, uh, that sort of thing. But, I mean, under the hood, there's some things going on. Should we hit a few of those things? Well, let's look at the rundown because that's what we do. We have a crack staff. I don't know. that. I guess that's a bull um, picture. That is a bull. Be yeah. bullish. Merrill Lynch. Remember that one? Bulls get more bullish. I used to ask my father because I didn't, you know, as a kid, you don't know what that means. Merrill Lynch is bullish on America. And I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And that was yeah. the commercial. And there'd be all these bulls and stuff running. And, yeah. I, and I'd, I'd say, you know, what, what does that mean? And I, I'm sure he tried to explain it to me. It's probably was lost on me, which may be the reason why I'm, I'm bearish all the time. Stocks versus yields. Something's got to give like the movie with Jack Nicholson. And is oil ready to rally? We'll debate. I, no, we won't. We'll have a conversation. We'll have, um, but, we will have that, a conversation. But that's it. So it is, listen, it is an interesting day um, through the lens of a couple things. You know, you you have some some things rallying. You have some things giving it back a little bit. You have an S&P that's now actually, you know, it was flat for most of the day. Now down 10 handles. Again, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. Yields continue to sort of hover around 430. The VIX back below 13 and three quarters. Yeah, you don't want to make a huge deal out of anything, but there are yeah. some things to take a look at. So we might as well, well do that. Yeah, let's do that. So one one of the big bulls, and he'd been on our on the tape podcast maybe a couple of times last year was Tom Lee. It's interesting. Tom's going to be on Fast Money t- tonight talking about the Bitcoin, um, the Bitcoin. But he's actually had, I, I think, um, and just recently, maybe a, a bearish take on stocks um, for the first half of this year. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays out. I know he was, I, I think he's on CNBC most days. Um, and I think recently he said he doesn't see the top yet, but he sees him down in the first half of this year. Calling those sorts of moves is definitely um, kind of difficult. But Tom's had a good bullish call. So we'll see what he's got to say tonight. Uh, but, guy, let's throw that other chart up there. It was kind of interesting. It was kind of showing 
where the average sort of strategist target is. And, and, and basically we're above that um, right now. You see where UBS and Barclays are all the way up there um, as high as 5,400. You see where JP Morgan, I think that's Marco Kalanovic down there at 4,200 or 4,300, very near the lows from October. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. We had this chart made up yesterday. Uh, I think Amanda did it on the fly. Let's just throw this up here. So it's the S&P 500 versus the 10-year yield. And you see the last time they intersected, guys, it was when the yield was at 430. That's where we are basically right now. The S&P was at 4,600. We're at 5065. We're about 10% higher. So, you know, some sort of convergence of, of those, um, whether it be that yields continue to push higher. I think you and I are both in the camp. If they were to do that sooner or later, it is going to have a knock-on effect on equities. Um, but thoughts on when you see, and, and Carter did a nice job with this chart. He's like, all right, well, if you want to back this out five years, it doesn't do the thing that you think it, it, it might do. But the point here is that expectations were for lower rates in mid-December, which is one of the reasons that catapulted stocks much higher. But rates have since rebounded off those lows and stocks are still higher. Yeah, we talked about this. We'll do it again for any new audience members. But, you know, you had this. Listen, they, they were pretty much in, in stair step with each other for a decent amount period of time. They had obviously changed in the you know in the fall and it made sense as yield started to explode higher, obviously the market started to sell off. That's when you had the decoupling. But as again, you know as yield started to fall precipitously, that's when the market started to get on its horse. And as you said, you had that sort of intersection right around I guess, you know, the 430-ish level. Uh, yeah, 435, but we'll make it 430 for sake of this conversation. Well, here we are again. The market continues to rally. And I guess the question is, you know, are we going to start to see a, a, a reversion to the mean? Well, stocks at some point, are we going to hit that point of more diminishing returns where yields get too high that stocks don't like it? And, you know, you go back and look at this chart, it would suggest we're right at it now, although the price action suggests otherwise. But I'm with you on this one. You know, I again, I'll say this for the hundredth time. You know, I'm one of the few people out there that have thought and continue to think yields can go higher from here for a myriad of reasons that we've discussed. I don't think higher yields are going to be back on an economy that's doing well. I think they're going to be for other reasons, and I think the market's not going to like that. Now, that has not been the right view for quite some time. We'll see if it plays out. But this chart, I think, illustrates you know, the decoupling that's taken place since the fall. Yeah. And, you know, and it's interesting. So what you just said about yields and the reasons why they might go higher and you talked about the issuance and and the like here, it's funny, you know, like it seems like there's this growing chorus of folks who think that, you know, the soft landing is happening. And, And again, the longer that we don't have a recession, the longer that the economy keeps putting up decent numbers, despite inflation that apparently has done going down for the time being guy, as long as unemployment, and I get it, there's a lot of folks who say, well, we don't measure it correctly and the, and the like here, you know what I mean? Like, like all that sort of stuff. The longer that goes on is the longer that risk assets could probably continue the work in face of higher rates, right? And, and, and avoid a recession until it happens, you know, like I, I, I just don't know. Right. But I just, the point I just want to make again about S and P and stocks in general is that that concentration of those five or six names, you know, as you lose a Tesla, as you possibly lose a Google, right? It becomes that much more incumbent on a smaller group of names. And I was just, I was floored yesterday at that MSCI World Index, $71 trillion in market mm. cap globally of equities. And you look at those top three there are 11.5% of the global 
equity concentration. Do you know what I mean, guys? So to me, you better see some broadening out. Let's let's pull up the Russell 2000. Let's pull up the Russell 2000 futures here. Small caps, again, Microsoft's market cap, greater than the index of the whole 2000 guy. But it's it's hanging in there a little bit despite the underperformance to, uh, to mega caps. Listen, we're at a pretty critical level. I mean, we're looking at through the lens of futures right now, and that's what our task is to do here. So that's obviously an interesting chart. But if you go back, if we were able to sort of extend that even farther out, you will see that's the one. This is the chart you really look at through the lens of the IWM. They're going to look very similar, but I just want to illustrate this because as we've pointed out a number of times, I mean, this 204 and a half, 205 level has been resistance a number of times. And, you know, technicians will say, you know, given the fact that we're trying it again or testing it again, it's just a matter of time before we break through. You know, maybe that's the case. I really don't know. I mean, we'll see how it plays itself out. But it's an important chart to look at because obviously, as the S&P has been making new highs seemingly on a daily basis, the Russell's been doing something entirely different. And again, you can say that the IWM is not a particularly well-constructed ETF. That's fine. But I think it speaks to what we talk about all the time, the the sensitivity to the economy that these stocks face. Yeah, no, and that I guess is the most important point, and and one of the reasons why. Let's see if it can get uh, above that resistance that's been in place for what a year and a half or so. And I think this article from Bloomberg, I think we have a little slide of this, is talking about um, the G20, and it's some sort of draft memorandum, and it's talking about the increasing likelihood of the global economy having a soft landing. And and ultimately, if that does bear itself out, and we start seeing that data. Globally, then you're going to see some other areas, you know, uh, as far as the cap structure, um, IWM here, they don't have all this international exposure, but it will actually speak to, you know, a reflation of the U.S. economy, which should be good for the lagging um, IWM or the Russell 2000 guy. Does that make some sense? And and I know it doesn't make you feel better that the G20 is drafting this sort of stuff that, that tells you that the economy globally is okay here. No, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it. No, it does not make me feel good at all. I mean, it's like asking Aaron Boone, what he thinks the Yankees chances of winning the World Series this year? And he said, we got a great chance. I mean, everybody, I mean, they're, they're bent to be that predisposed to have that viewpoint. They're not going to say otherwise. And I'm not like I'm some conspiracy theorist. History suggests that's the case. And, you know, they're probably wrong as many times as they're right. I don't know how they see this. I mean, if you look at the global credit problems we have. I mean, it's it's a ticking time bomb, not only here in the United States, but the global debt problem is significant. And I don't think they're taking that into consideration at all. And obviously, higher yields have an impact on that. So listen, they can say what they want. Good for them. You know, so I don't even know what I don't listen. Soft landing in terms of what? In terms of unemployment not going higher, in terms of stock markets not selling off? Like, I don't even know what it means at this point. I think soft landing has a different mean meaning for a lot of different people. Well, I, I think generally it, it means that, you know, like no recession in, in the immediate um, outlook. You know, a lot of these strategists are kind of speaking about their S&P targets and they speak to what they expect for the economy, right? And so for them, they don't see, you know, a, a recession starting in the next, you know, quarter or two, um, that sort of thing, which again, yeah, you know. No, it's interesting. And I and I get that. And yeah. we're going down a rabbit hole here. I don't mean to, and I apologize, but this is what oh. I'll say. I think 65% of people in the United States live paycheck to paycheck. That's just factually true. So, I mean, if that's if that's not a recession, it's clearly a problem for them. I think over 70% of people couldn't afford 
an emergency payment of uh, $500 or more. That's a problem. I think there's some ridiculous statistic. One in six people in the United States have what is deemed to be food insecurity. So, you know, we can, and I'm not suggesting this is you, I'm not doing this, but my point is the economists can say what they want. And the statistics might say that, yeah, we're not in a recession, but for a lot of these people, they're like, F you, it's worse than that for us. And that's been my problem with, with the economists and all this bullshit the entire time. Because for a lot of, listen, for a lot of people in this country, uh, they wish we were in a recession because for a lot of them, this is again, late 1920s, 1930s type of stuff going on. And that's yeah. just, that's factually true. Yeah. And the stock market doesn't care about any of it. You know, you know what I mean? It does not care about any of it. No, right. And and so like the other point, you know, I'd make is that, you know, you and I have been listening to Fed chairs um, for a while. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, Jerome Powell speaks to some of this stuff, Guy. And I think he speaks to it in a, in a very empathetic way. I, I, I would like to give him credit on that regard, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so I, I love your passion on it. I've heard it, um, you know, on Fast Money, on our podcast for years. I know it's something that you believe, that I believe. And it's just, you know, the thing that sometimes is frustrating, and I think some people, some of our listeners or viewers uh, probably get frustrating with us sometimes, is that we kind of get emotional or conflate some of those sorts of things about what we really feel like is going on in the economy versus what we read all day long that seems insensitive and seems to lack some sort of empathy towards those situations that you're talking about. When we're reading a conference call of Walmart and they're telling us that you know consumers are trading down to them and then they're seeing other consumers of theirs that used to be mainstays trading down to dollar mm-hmm. stores or food banks, that sort of thing. It's really hard to come on a podcast or come on CNBC and talk about the market and ignore those sorts of sensibilities, right? Like, so that's really difficult job. And I think most people in this business don't really, you know, they're not, they don't have a mic in front of their face every day and this and that, whatever. But it's hard if if we did not voice those sorts of opinions, I think that we would seem like robotic in a way, huh? No, I agree with that. And, you know, the other thing that happens almost now, not on a daily basis, but you see it a couple of times a week, you know, companies announce publicly traded companies that announce layoffs and then the knee-jerk reaction is their stock goes higher. And you think about what a slap in the face that is to people that work at these companies or just workers in general when they see layoffs. Again, this is over a swath of different industries over the last year, year and a half. And they see that and they're like, holy shit. I mean, that's the ultimate sort of kick in the nuts where yeah. you know you get laid off and the company you just work for, you watch their stock go higher. But listen, you know, I'm on a bit of a soapbox here. I totally get it. We're not necessarily here to talk about those things, but it's important to point out because, again, the economists that talk about soft landings and stuff, you know, again, factually, maybe they're going to be right. But for a lot of people, man, that ship has sailed a long time ago. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let's talk about um, Fed funds rate. Let's talk about the CME Fed funds mm-hmm. tracker, because this is something that obviously, you know, um, the predictability about where rates are going to go has something to do with how people view um, the stock market here. We see that five and a half percent upper bound. It seems like very likely at the March meeting, we can flash forward to the next meeting after that. And the May meeting seems very likely again, guy. This is something that last year, I go back to that chart when the S&P took off. We went from 5% in the 10-year in the fall 
down to 3.8%, right? And that was the thing that got stocks rocking and rolling a little bit because basically, you know, the markets were interpreting that we were going to have five, six cuts possibly, mm-hmm. right? Um, interest rate cuts. And that was going to be supportive of equity market valuations. You and I did not think that was going to happen. We thought the only way it was going to happen is if the shit really hit the fan as far as the economy and really fell apart and the Fed would have to ease. So here we are. Let's go back to that Fed funds tracker here. And okay, they're saying summer, baby. You know what I mean? So that is pushing out cuts fairly dramatically. So the question is soft landing, higher rates, stronger dollar, um, cost cutting, which you just spoke to, right? So they're cutting jobs before they're probably cutting CapEx and and R&D and that sort of thing, right? So that's supportive of equity valuations, um, if you will. Make no mistake about it. I mean, a lot of productivity gains were learned during the pandemic and some of the different kind of, you know, ways in which companies operated and that sort of thing. And they're learning how to do more with less. And, And AI is going to be one of those trends. You know, people forget, man, you know, like before the pandemic, the boogeyman was automation and, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We're going to have to institute universal basic income. What are all the people going to do when the, when the robots take the jobs and this and whatever? Well, it's happening. It's been accelerated too. So again, we might just have a very different economy going forward, you know what I mean, from some of the learnings of the pandemic, but then resetting what normal rates are, what normal inflation rates might be going forward in, in an economy that maybe is going to be accelerated by technology and the like. So those are all the things that I think yeah. you, know, you and I are always thinking about, but it's hard to reflect those views in the stock market here and now. 100%. I mean, in technology, historically, technology is the most deflationary force in the history of mankind. That's just, again, factually true. So, you know, you've had, obviously, this technology boom over the last 20, 25 years, obviously accelerated over the last few years. And, you know, that, to a certain extent, provides tremendous headwinds for inflation. So, you know, you could say to yourself, without technology, you know, where would inflation really be? So you have this Push me, pull you of deflationary forces in the form of technology, the inflationary forces that have been alive and well for long before the market was even talking about inflation. And then you're trying to figure out what rate cuts are going to mean if and when they happen this summer. So there's a lot to unravel here. But, you know, there are a lot of people that believe it's just a very Pavlovian response. Fed cuts rate stocks go higher. But go back and look over time, over history. When Fed starts cutting rates, typically is a wrong time to be buying stocks. So, I mean, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are probably wishing to, you know, hoping for this thing to get pushed out even farther into the distance for fear that once they start, they're going to continue to go down this path. And that might actually not be bullish for stocks because maybe something's breaking along the way. So yep. there's there's yeah. there's so much. Again, you can look at this through all the different lens you want. If your dogma is bearish, you can understand how that would be. If you're predisposed to be bullish, you can definitely weave that narrative. If you're trying to look at it through an even keel, I mean, that's why it's so confusing. I know for me on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I mean, guys, listen, if we want to go back to the lack of breath in the stock market, what's very simple to me, it doesn't actually have to be an economic event or it doesn't have to be a geopolitical event that breaks the stock market or causes it to correct. And when I say break, really starting with a correction and then see how it goes. What's very clear to me, and this goes back to our many readers and viewers who email us and say, why do you guys talk about NVIDIA every day? Why did you talk about Tesla every day? You know, this and that, whatever. Because ultimately, guys, it will be NVIDIA. 
And it's not going to be that NVIDIA does something wrong. It's not going to be that NVIDIA, you know, GPUs cause cancer. It's not going to be that there's some accounting, you know, impropriety or this. It will be the sheer competition coming online. It will be just, the, you know, like the easing of the, the, the supply demand dynamics. Um, it will be lower pricing for their products. It will be maybe less commercialization of the end products of all these people tripping over each other to buy these. You know, it'll be just the normal business cycle that happens. And what's happened so far, you must understand is abnormal. Okay. And that's why we harp on these things. And that's why we harped on Tesla for a year and a half or actually much longer. Sorry about that people. But Tesla broke. The story is broken. The fundamental story has shifted. It was shifting before your eyes in 2023, but most bulls didn't want to believe it, right? And I don't know what happens from here, okay? Because it obviously broke in 2022, you know, late 2021 too. And last year, if let's just pull up the chart, you know, let's pull up going back to the highs in 21 guy. I mean, people forget when they talk about, well, Tesla had a, it ripped your face off last year. Didn't rip shit off, okay? That stock, Dropped from 200 to 100 and two months, okay, in late 2022, right, into the start of 2023. So it got back what it gave up in a matter of months. But what did it spend basically most of last year doing? Going lower. A series of lower highs and a series of lower lows. And look where the stock is right now. It's stuck at those lower lows based on four very disappointing earnings reports and a macro backdrop, which is not favorable to what this company does. So I know that was a bit of a no, rant, but that's not, why no, we talk about NVIDIA. Because these stocks have become their own asset class. In some ways, they become their own indices and just in terms of the, their scope and size. I mean, you think about it, we talk about the market talks about Bitcoin every day. I mean, as a, what is the market cap of Bitcoin now? Probably a little north of a trillion dollars or something. I mean, you'd know better than I do. I mean, oh, so yeah. it's no different than talking about NVIDIA with a $2 trillion. It's the same. It's all the same shit. I mean, they've become their own asset class. And I don't know if Amanda can do this on the fly. I apologize for asking. But if you can overlay a NASDAQ chart with a Tesla chart over that same period of time, just to physically see it. I mean, you talk about Tesla. Yeah. I mean, this is a shitty performing stock if the market had been going down. The market's been going up since Tesla topped out in 2021. So. You tell me. I mean, it's completely underperformed the broader market over that period of time, despite the fact that it went from 109 to 300 uh, seemingly in a straight line. Yeah. Hey, you know, and on the Tesla front, it's interesting. There's a guy on Twitter who's like one of those. Um, there you ooh, go. Ooh, look at that. Look at that. And, and you know what's crazy, guy? I mean, this stock was trading at 230 when it went into the S&P 500 in late 2020. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, made a high of 400. Here it is at $200 or something like that. I mean, it's an unmitigated disaster. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, 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 it's not even so, you know, for all those folks who say that Elon is worth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to that market value. Well, I sure as shit hope that he's uh, still around in the not so distant future because this thing could could find its way, you know, much lower. So I don't know. We, we can we can we can move on that. Um, uh, we'll, move, we'll move on from that. But great job by Amanda. You know, it's interesting. One of the things and we, we have this Financial Times and great job with this slide. But I've said this now for the last couple of years. I think people have heard me say this, but I've said three things have happened to the oil industry that have been complete tailwinds. I said the first thing was probably when ESG started being talked about in earnest. I think that was a wake-up call for a lot of these energy companies. And fast forward, I think a lot of these companies now 
in terms of ESG are probably the best stewards out there, number one. And we can debate that, but I think it's true. Number two, when you saw that front month crude went to minus $39 a barrel a few Aprils ago, that was a huge wake-up call. And the third thing I said that really, I think, pissed people off, but now proves to be factually true, given this headline, was the Biden administration. People like, you're out of your effing mind. I'm like, well, okay, that's fine. That happens to be true. I am. But this also happens to be true. And then you read this article and you're like, holy shit, guy, you're not as crazy as we thought. It turns out the Biden administration has been the best thing that happened to the oil and gas industry. And here it is laid out right before you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Guy. And and this is one where it's funny. um, I mean, I don't think too many people um, have a hard time figuring out my politics on CNBC or, or, or some of the times. And, and I know that um, you, you seem to be a very pragmatic guy. I've known you for a long time um, about politics, but it's funny. You had been saying that about ESG, about Biden. And I think it's really interesting. Are you willing to give him, and I'm just curious how you think about this, some credit, because this was a pivot for national security reasons, for, you know, um, supply chain reasons, right? For geopolitical reasons. Um, and again, you know, I'm with you. I I can't stand it. I saw you on um, MSNBC a week and a half ago. We talked about it on our pod yesterday. Um, I think you really said it well when you talked about price controls and the, and the like. So when you have the administration coming back and talking about gouging and the like, I think it's a really easy target in periods like this. But in practice, you, you're going to start debating our whole way of life if, if that's what right, you want right. to do. Right. And so do you. But so my question to you is, do you give them a little credit, even though they're still jawboning a little bit because that's politics? But the yeah, policy yeah. has worked. So it's interesting. I mean, I know what you're, I know what you I understand your question. So I guess the short answer is yes. But you also have to go back and listen to when he was campaigning for president. I mean, again, this happens to be factually true. You know, this was you know, one of their platforms was were we're going to put the oil and gas industry out of business. So, you, you know, and maybe and I and I do think that that was you know, maybe that was a bit of hyperbole there. I don't think the oil and gas business is ever going out of business. I think it will morph like it's done historically. Um, but that's just me. I think that was probably, I don't know. I, I, you know, you wonder if he could take something like that back, Woody. I have no idea, but that was a platform they ran on. With that said, you know, they've sort of backed into a few things that have worked to their favor without question. I mean, you can say, look, I was a hundred percent against, for example, the SPR release. I thought that was really well, um, just not completely misguided and not well thought out. But as it turns out, Maybe it's going to work to their advantage. You know, maybe they became a decent commodity trader. And maybe they're going to be able to buy it back at a discount to where they sold it. So some things have fallen in their lap. So I guess the short answer is, yeah, I'll give them some credit for that. But again, you got to remember, this was an administration that wanted to make Exxon Mobil's and Chevron's and Conoco's go away. Yeah. And again, I mean, that's politics versus policy. Right. And and so like you see this headline is that these companies have never been more profitable and they're, you know, trying to do these, you know, 50, 60 billion dollar deals. We'll see if that happens. So who knows? Let, let's look at crude oil here, guy, because this chart is firming up a little bit. You know, we've been tracking it um, on, on Tuesdays on the market call here. We put on um, a bullish trade idea in the futures when it was down, I think, in the low 70s. I think you my target. It was kind of where it was, 78 or where it is right now, 78, getting back towards that 200-day moving average, which is clearly flattened, thinking that that prior high from January might serve as a, a little bit of resistance here, but pretty decent, you know, kind of consolidation here, looking like I'm making a little flag here. 
Um, if you are still long of crude here, are you playing for a push above those Jan highs and possibly above that nice round number of 80? I think the answer is yes. And you're going to say, I mean, guy, you've been saying this forever. And yeah, I have been saying it forever. But I'll go back. And if you look again since December, you know, what you see here, you know, you mentioned a series of lower highs and lower lows in Tesla. Well, since December, you've had a series of higher lows. I mean, that's just right there in front of you. But this level here obviously is huge resistance. It's resistance in the form of the moving average. It's also resistance in the form of sort of where we topped out at and broke down from back in November. So I happen to think it's going to surprise people to the upside. I don't think people are, and again, my opinion, are prepared for crude to go higher. I think that's sort of the, at this point, I think it's sort of the counter idea. I think consensus is probably lower. And we'll see how it plays out. And by the way, crude's been able to sort of hang on, as has gold, by the way, with yields going higher and the dollar going higher, which traditionally have been headwinds. So we'll see. But I do think you can hold on here. And I do think if you get a close sort of above, let's call it 80 and a half in WTI, I think that's going to be the next leg higher. Yeah, so it's interesting. It leads me to kind of looking at the oil service stocks, and I know the OIH is an ETF that that you you like. And again, you know, the top three names make up, you know, what what is it about uh, here? I'll, I'll tell you. Forty five percent at Schlumberger, Halliburton, cool. and, ba- and Baker Hughes, and I think it's forty eight percent of the entire ETF. That's off the top of my head. Yeah, no, and and so look at that. You see that very steady downtrend that it's been in, and you see that little uptrend that it's been in over the last month or so, and it just picked up its head, guy, above the downtrend, right? And so that's a downtrend that has been in place since the highs in September. So let's see what sort of authority it gets through, but mm-hmm. let's back this one out a little bit because this is interesting when you look at the OIH from the lows in 2020, and so it's kind of funny, right? So I look at this chart and you say, well, there was a big ramp last year, and then there was this downtrend. Look at this uptrend. And those moves, like those moves from the low end of that channel mm-hmm. guy to the high end, the first one was like 80%. The second one was 65%. The third one was like 50% or so. So when you bounce off of there, you get some movement. And this got me thinking uh, about a potential options trade here. So I have one on in the XLE, a kind of near-term bullish one. I'm kind of um, you know, following your coattails a little bit on that. But this OAH, from a technical standpoint, looks really interesting. Why do the options look interesting to me in this one? Well, if this thing breaks to the downside, that breaks that uptrend. I don't want to be long this thing. Could we agree on that? Like, 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 so, so to define my risk, right. In, in the OIH using options makes some sense. Looking out to maybe April expiration guy with the stock or the ETF right around 301, the 300 calls are about 13 and a half dollars. Okay. So you can do that math. It's a little more than 4%. You got, you know, a little more than two months. That's a lot. You know, if this thing just continues to co- consolidate, go sideways, you know what I mean? That's just going to continue to bleed the theta, right. It's going to, it's going to, not a great risk reward here. You might think about a call spread by selling, you know, something maybe at the 350 strike or something like that to kind of reduce that exposure. The 350s, though, in April are only a dollar. So as a rule of thumb guy on a $300 ETF or stock, you don't really want to sell something less than 1%, even though it's, you know, more than 10% out of the money or so. So the options aren't great, but I'm just bringing it up because I'm starting to think about what would be a way to kind of capture a move back towards those prior highs? What were those prior highs in September? Maybe 370, 380 or you something? You know, we, we got as high. Yeah, I want to say a little, north, little south of 360, but no, your point's well taken. I mean, okay. and again, this. Oh, yeah. I'm, glad, yeah. I'm glad we looked at this because this channel, this is again going on basically a three-year channel. I think this goes back to early 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, 
you go back and look. I mean, this has been in an uptrend ever since. Now, the problem, of course, is the downdrafts have been significant and it's left you sort of scratching your head, but the channel hasn't been broken. And we've effectively traded down to the lower band of this channel. And I think we are bouncing. So does that take us up to the upper levels of this trend, of this channel, which probably, by the way, if we were to extend it out with time decay, uh, is probably close to 400. And again, I'm not saying that's where we're going, but my point is with each passing day, uh, the the lower band gets higher and the higher band gets higher. So support continues to get higher, but resistance continues to get higher as well. So I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be trading in the middle of this channel at some point over the next month and a half or so. Yeah, and uh, ooh, look at that. Uh, wow, I mean that that is uh, an insane chart right there. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll look at this one. Maybe we'll we'll check back on this one. We'll get Carter his take on the technicals on this one. Let's just pull up XLE again because this is one that's also um, the the uh, large integrated and very concentrated among um, a handful of names. I think last night on Fast Money, your final trade was the Chevron. Chevron See, it comes and- out. See Charlie Victory X Ray, right. and that was on the back of the news that. The Hess deal was going to sort of go by the wayside. And they saw it's funny because we talked about it last night, but when the deal was announced, uh, Chevron sold off. And then when the deal was said that it's not going to happen, they sold it off again. So it's sort of like that, you know, heads you win, tails you lose type of thing, except in reverse for Chevron. But here we are. And by the way, this XLE chart, if we can extend this out and, you know, you can see, yeah, XLE's had a huge downdraft since the fall. I totally get it. I mean, it was, you know, basically taken out back and shot. But now if you look at it over the course of a longer term chart, you'll see despite the fact that it's sold off, it's actually sort of hanging around pretty well here. So, you know, you say what you want, but it's continue to sort of hang around at these levels, which I think is encouraging. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let's look at the dollar, the DXY, the U.S. dollar index here. Um, this is kind of interesting. So you just mentioned, you know, what crude was was doing, you know, in in the face of a stronger dollar, and and again, you know, the D- DXY was uh, made a high of like one hundred seven and a half last year, got as low as uh, below one hundred one towards the end of the year. You can see that move, so it's rebounded here a little bit. But you know, from one hundred five, guy, it's come off. You know, in in the last week and a half um, or so. Um, thoughts on the dollar. I know that there's like that's a, a whole tough of, one. Yeah, it's a tough. You know, it, it is <clears throat> still in an, a, a bit of an uptrend here. But you'd think with the yields, the way that they've kind of held ground, you know, where they are right here, that higher yields probably means higher dollar too. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Th- yes, it should mean that. But you know, you look at this, and if Carter were here, he'd say at these levels, it's a pair of two. So. Just keep this chart in mind, the DXY, which mm-hmm. is skewed towards sort of the euro. Now, pull up a yep. – I don't know if Amanda can do this again. I apologize. But if you pull up a dollar-yen chart, you'll see something that's telling a little bit of a different story. Dollar-yen traded up to 151, I think, in the late fall. Traded all the way back down to 140, <laughs> excuse me. And we've recently pushed north of 150, and we're probably straddling either side of 150 now. So – Dollar yen looks like it might be putting in a bit of a short-term top here. So understanding that, you know, the yen's not a huge component of the DXY, but this tells a little bit of a different story. You know, either this, either dollar is going to continue to strengthen against the yen and, you know, we get through this 151 level and we're off to the races, or, you know, we're going to struggle with this level again. And it's just a matter of time before we do, you know, the entire stair step back down to 140. My point in bringing this up is dollar yen here is... Whereas DXY, I don't think is at a critical level. It's sort of a no man's land. Dollar yen yeah. is absolutely at a critical level. 
Well, I will say this, if they want to go back to the DXY for a second, there's a very simple uptrend that you can draw from those December lows. You see it right there. I mean, we kind of, we've broken it, um, you know, mm-hmm. to, the, to the downside. So again, it would be fascinating guy to see any sort of divergence. They want to throw a 200 day moving average up there. We are like sitting right on that moving average. Um, so this chart, Maybe not a pair of twos. Maybe we got to get our okay. main man CBW on this one, guy. I mean, maybe maybe this is one that he wants to uh, that he push wants- to the downside. No, look, absolutely. I, again, yeah. that's you know, I was looking in the context of where we are and where we've been, yeah. but in the context of this trend line, you know, maybe you're definitely onto yeah. something here. Hey, by the way, you and I have been in the business for a long time. I entered it in 1997. Um, you entered, I think, in 87. 86. Um, 86. Spring of, the spring of 86. You and I are very fortunate to have FactSet as our data partner, and we use FactSet. And uh, how did we make it through this business as long as we have without Amanda doing our FactSet the way she operates it on no, the fly? It's, it's well, amazing. 100%. Amanda's, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, she navigates this thing. I mean, she might as well be Ahab sitting on the... <laughs> Pequot with her hand on the steering wheel. Yeah. Factset, you know, you think about it. I, I think I stumbled upon Factset and street accounts in early 2000s. I, you know, maybe 2002 or something. Don't quote, please don't at me if I'm off by a year, but something like that. And in our world, it's, it's vital. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's not an arrow in your quiver. It's like, it's an, an essential part of my day. So when people see me looking down on screens and stuff and get mad at me because when we're talking to guests, I'm looking at something, I'm typically looking at something from street accounts or something from fact set. Yeah, no, that that is matter of fact. I think we're very fortunate to have these tools at our disposal, especially as we're talking. We want to be as factual as possible. All right, so just kind of um, extending out that conversation about the dollar, let's look at gold. And and again, um, you know, if I didn't, I, listen, I, I just don't know much about gold. I'm not a macro trader. We talk a lot about this stuff. I think I have a good handle after being in the business for 25 years on how the inner workings of these sorts of things are, the knock-on effects in the summer. But I just, I still to this day don't know why people buy gold, but I can look at a chart and I can also say to myself, that's a good looking chart. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you told me a story about this chart and you put a different name on it and you told me about something that they do and you told me that they earn money and you told me there's some product announcement that's coming out and you told me that, you know, sentiment is actually kind of bearish because some of their competitors have been acting better in the stock market and it trades at a discount. To, I'd be like, I want to buy this. Okay. And so I just rattled through that little thing right there that, you know, we got, we get the question all the time. How do you think about things? How, why do you, how do you come up with ideas? You know, sometimes it could be it's sometimes as easy as looking at a chart, right. And then just kind of figuring out some of the other stuff. So this one's confounding to me guy, because if I look at this and you tell me a story about what this is, it's just gold. I I, I have a hard time coming up with yeah. reasons to buy it. Does that make sense? No, hundred Listen, the reasons not to buy it is there are no earnings associated with gold, right? You can't put an earnings uh, you get price to earnings on the back of it because there are no earnings. In higher interest rate environment, it's a non-interest bearing asset. So the higher interest rates go, theoretically, the more of a headwind is for gold. All those things make a lot of sense. And to your other point, it's it's sort of tough to get your head around in terms of why are people owning it and the reasons why. I mean, you go back historically and you say. You know, in times of strife, central banks want to have gold in their vaults uh, for concerns about whatever those concerns are going to be. And and with that said, that's exactly what we've seen over the last couple of years. Central banks bought gold in record amounts two years ago. 
I think it was 1,711 tons, if memory serves. Uh, I think that's right. Something around $70 billion. And basically, it's about the same amount last year. So central banks are clearly seeing something. And what I've said, and I believe this, I think in large part, they're hedging their own ineptitude. And I think they probably see what's down the, down the pike. So I think gold's going to have its day. Clearly, it has not. I mean, you had that one blip a few months ago on a Sunday night, I think, that was quickly sort of tamped down. I think the fact that Bitcoin is now 57,000 is obviously taking some of the limelight away and probably some of the investing dollars away as well. But gold, to your point, is hanging in there like a champ. Yeah, wouldn't that be an amazing turn of events, Guy? Because one of the bullish, like one of the pillars of the bull case for for Bitcoin has always been this kind of store of value, this inflation hedge, this, um, you know, like they just call it nerd gold. I mean, like, let's be frank, right? And so BK, our friend Brian Kelly, has been saying this to us for a decade. He's been quoting what the market cap globally is of gold, what it is in investment you know, terms and, and the like. And his bullish case has been, if it were just to take 10%, mm-hmm. you get Bitcoin 20, you know, 200,000 or 300, whatever, whatever the hell it is. And you know, look at that move right there. I mean, that tells you something's going on. It's just above one trillion in market cap. You see how much it's gained from you know under forty thousand to nearly sixty thousand. You know, so we're we're going on a forty percent sort of move in what a month and a half or so um, on an asset class like this. Now, you and I, if this happened two years ago, you and I would say, oh, it's kind of crazy. It's like one of these wacky sort of things. We just saw a stock that does have earnings that does, you know, just gain a trillion dollars in market cap, what this market cap is. So you and I are less confounded by this move at, at this time. No, no. I mean, in terms of Bitcoin, you know, I don't, again, I don't pretend to understand it. I read Brian's book in 2014. He's obviously forgotten more than I'll ever know, but I'm not surprised by anything that it does quite frankly. And when you get some of the animal spirits behind it, I mean, moves of this magnitude make sense. And, you know, we brought it up earlier that we the reason why we talk about certain names all the time is because they become their own asset class. Well, Bitcoin is also its own asset class. Now, what concerns me here, you know, with each passing day, you know, we get a few standard deviations away from the moving average. Historically, that's been problematic for Bitcoin. We'll see if that continues to be the case. Um, it's going to take a lot of work. Let's put it this way. It's going to have to spend a lot of time at 58000 to work off the discrepancy between where the moving average is and where the price is. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and again, you know, this goes back to one of the reasons why we focus on some of these, like the shiniest objects in the markets, whatever markets they are. Because, Guy, you've been doing Fast Money for 17 years. I've been doing you know, CNBC for nearly 15 years, starting with Options Action and then Fast Money for the last 13 or so. And we have a lot of contact with a lot of retail investors who tune into this sort of stuff because they're looking for, you know, just a little bit of demystification of some of these sorts of things. And, you know, again, we are not, um, hopefully, you know, we have, this is our professional lives. We've been doing this for our whole lives. We're, we wouldn't tell you that we're experts or this and that or whatever, but we spend a lot more time than most people who do other things in life, who, who look at the markets as a way to kind of, you know, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a way to kind of earn money over time, you know, whatever the hell it is, right? So they look at us and they say, they, they say, look, explain this to me. How many times have you heard a retail investor say, explain this to me, right? And so when we look at like a Bitcoin, we know 
that lots of retail, they're late to the game. They start seeing it on the news or they start seeing it in the newspaper or they hear it at the golf club or they hear it at the water cooler, whatever the hell it is, and they just FOMO into it. And they don't maybe look at charts. Maybe they say, oh, the thing's only a trillion dollars. Well, Microsoft's $3 trillion. I, I see more value for Bitcoin than I do mm-hmm. for Microsoft Office. Whatever the hell you justify, whatever reason. So our only point why we spend time on those things is like we hate seeing people just get sucked into manias and then they never know when to sell because it's hard because it's psychology, right? It's like all that sentiment, all those sorts of things. So Bitcoin has given you the opportunity since its existence to buy it on massive pullbacks. You know what I mean? Rather than buying it up on these huge spikes. And I think, and I do believe you're going to get that opportunity again. So I guess what the point you're making, the point that I would like to make, if you've missed it and feel like shit is now the time, I don't think now is the time. I do think you will have an opportunity to buy this significantly cheaper than it is right now, uh, whatever that means. So, you know, stay tuned because there are more chapters left. And this feels like there's something going on that we have not been able to identify that will come out over the next couple of weeks. But you know, I also probably think it speaks to the fact that, you know, go back and look, you know, the inflation data, I think it kept coming in hot was sort of the juice that Bitcoin needed, because one of my premises has been, you know, Bitcoin is sort of the anti-central bank play. And if the Fed is going to have an inflation problem again, um, they're going to be sort of in this corner where do we cut rates? Do we raise rates? Which, again, I don't think we're raising rates. You know, that works to Bitcoin's favor. No doubt about it. All right, last thing before we get out of here, um, CME Group, our fine sponsor, great friends of ours. We love the products and we just love the team there and we couldn't be happier about their support. They have been from day one, Guy, when we started Risk Versal Media, they've been a sponsor of the On The Tape podcast of obviously your market call. We spend a lot of time talking about the um, market cap weighted S&P 500. Obviously, the CME is the place to trade futures on that index. But now live are E-mini S&P 500 equal weight futures guy, right? So we spend a lot of time talking about the equal weight versus the market cap weight, right? So it smooths out those kind of um, the Microsofts and the NVIDIAs and the Apples and and the contribution to the S&P 500. So here's a way they're saying more diversification, less concentration. You can do it with E-mini S&P 500 equal weight futures guy. Now you have something, if you're somebody out there that be like, holy shit, you know, we I see that the market's being led by, you know, 8, 10, 12 different names. I am scared of that. Here's an opportunity to sort of take that risk away, mitigate that risk by getting into an asset class, a future that's obviously equal weight. So more diversification, absolutely. Less concentration without question. So this is a great product. And again, I'm glad you mentioned that because CME has been with us from the start and We have wonderful friendships there. We obviously think the world of the company and we're honored to be able to bring forth products like this. Yeah. And one last thing here on the futures. And we talk about this when we detailed like sort of trade ideas. You know, we talk about kind of setting entry points, uh, stop out points, right? On the downside, if you're long something and, and target prices and how you use trailing stops and the like. One of the reasons why, like you and I have been trading futures, I mean, I, I started in the late 90s um, at a hedge fund, is, uh, and on the CME group uh, uh, on the floor there, is, is that. 
um, you have the ability to kind of set these stops, right? In a way that it's not always so easy to do with equities because they have idiosyncratic risk, whether it be single names or something like that. So like to me, I view it as a very modular sort of trading pattern, but they have lots of resources there, educational resources on how to do them. Obviously, um, you know, you're going to want to read all their disclosures and their disclaimers and, 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 and really they have plenty of those resources there to figure them out. But again, Good on them. More diversification, less concentration. E mini S and P five hundred equal weight. Well, futures. Uh, futures is an asset class. I mean, that's really what it is. So you know, people think of them as speculative, speculative instruments, but effectively, what they've become over the years is an asset class unto themselves. So again, our honor to do this, and we thank them again for their partnership with us. We're going on four years now, which is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Hey, um, if they can go to the Twitter really quickly before, I swear this is the last thing. This is Game of Trades. This is a tweet from 31 minutes ago. This would be a good way to bookend this whole show, guy. Okay. So Game of Trades here, I'm going to put it in our little group chat and they can maybe pull this up right here. This is talking about soft landing is the consensus here. You're going to love this one. I think you've, 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 you've seen this Twitter account before. This also happened in 2000 and 2007. Both instances did not end well. Number of new stories with soft landing. Guy, tell me. Why is it different this time? And those gray, those gray areas are recessions there, people. It's not different. It's absolutely not different. This What's different about it this time, unfortunately, is a lot of these things are actually sort of worse, quite frankly. And, and we, you know, we don't have the time to get into it. Maybe we will. But, you know, yeah. people say it's different this time. Yeah, it's different because, you know, when you look at the you look at the amount of debt out there, you look at the amount of potential credit time bombs that are out there. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think it's worse. So to your point, it's not different. It never, it's never different, Dan. All right. Well, we just we're just highlighting it. We're not telling you which way it's no, going to no, go. No, no. Listen, we don't, I have hear you, crystal, brother. we don't have a crystal ball. You know what I mean? We just like listen. There's, you know, I'm glad I'm back on the Twitter a little bit, guy. There's some really good folks like printing good stuff that's thought provoking and the like. There's obviously a lot of you know BS on there too, but some of these accounts are pretty good. They're pretty useful. So all right, that's it for us, isn't it? I had a lot of fun. I want to thank, obviously, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Of course, facts at our data provider. As we mentioned, we'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow is Wednesday. EY from SoFi will be joining us. So have a good afternoon, folks. Toodaloo. Toodaloo.